This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. Reading the second psalm. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Taking as my subject today, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The nations are raging. Earthly kings and rulers plot and fight, vying for power. Sound familiar? Here is the twist. The psalmist sees all of this but also observes that in response to the machinations and schemes of the ruling powers of this world, the one who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision or contempt. He laughs and mocks them. Now, when I read this psalm, a couple of questions immediately came to mind. First, why is God laughing? And secondly... What does divine laughter look like? Is it just a a loud ha-ha, a chuckle booming out of the heavens? Now, as I was preparing for today's sermon, I was reminded of a short discussion of one of the weekly Torah portions, the Parsha readings, by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. And in his discussion he noted three instances in the Torah where he thought he could hear divine laughter. And I think his discussion was spot on. And so what I want to do today is to briefly explore each of those three instances in the Torah and put them in conversation with the second psalm and our present context. In this way, I think we can come to better understand what the psalmist was trying to communicate when he wrote, He who sits in the heavens laughs. So first, we turn to Genesis 11. Following the flood, the humans gather together in the plain of Shinar to make a city and a tower that will reach to heaven. No doubt something like what we know from archaeology as the ancient ziggurats the ruins of which are still visible in what is now modern Iraq. It's here in ancient Mesopotamia. 
where we find one of the birthplaces of human civilization as we now know it. These city-states were attempts by humans to manipulate their environments to suit their needs. In other words, rather than follow animal migrations and the seasons, these were places where humans attempted to bend creation to their will. Canals and channels moved water to crops and domestic animals so that people didn't have to keep moving around. And looming high above all of this agriculture and commerce and buildings were these ziggurats, these artificial mountains built with human hands, suggesting that their human builders had indeed acquired godlike powers. After all, who can make a mountain except a god? This desire to seize destiny is explicitly expressed in the Genesis account, which describes their impulse to reach heaven as an attempt to secure their own destiny. They sought to build a tower that reached to heaven. Why? They said, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. These massive structures looming over the flat plains of the Euphrates and Tigris River Valley, were intended to give the impression that it was no mere mortal who was in charge here. Instead, these rulers began to see themselves and speak about themselves as gods or demigods, or at the very least, humans who had the power to influence the gods. They want to build a tower, a city, to make a name for themselves, to reach up into heaven, to assume godlike powers. And the hubris of it all is definitely revealed in a single phrase And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is God laughing. On earth, the humans thought that they had reached the heavens. But from God's perspective, the tower was so small and so insignificant that he had to come down to really even see it. Only now with the invention of flight do we realize how small the tallest buildings are when viewed from a mere 30,000 feet. You don't even need to fly first class to see this. A seat and coach is more than adequate to reveal just how small our largest structures really are. At 30,000 feet, the details in the most massive building projects that we have ever made are blurry. You have to come down to see things. God doesn't ascend this man-made mountain to scope it out. No, He comes down. God's laughter at this hubris is further heard when he again comes down and confuses their language. What a scene. You can imagine it. They are going to reach heaven. And suddenly the mason asks for a stone and his assistant hands him a trowel. Across the way, a foreman is instructing the workers to hoist a massive stone, and they let go. The entire project, to borrow the words of Rabbi Sachs, 
foundered in a welter of incomprehension. They thought they could build up to heaven, that they could bend creation to their will, that they could act in the place of the Creator, but in the end they couldn't even understand what the person standing next to them was saying. The tower becomes a symbol of the inevitable futility of human hubris. Now, I should note, they did achieve one of their initial goals, but not in the way they originally intended. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and in this they succeeded. But instead of making a name that would be associated with godlike powers, Babel became Babel. The first Chernobyl, or Fukushima, if you will. Our second instance comes from Egypt, Exodus chapter 8, and the early plagues. Moses and Aaron first turned the water of the Nile into blood and filled the land of Egypt with frogs to demonstrate God's power. We then read that the Egyptian magicians do likewise to demonstrate that they had the same power. We should note, however, that they're so concerned with keeping up with Moses and demonstrating their own power, that they fail to realize that they're actually making things worse, not better. The real skill would have been to turn the blood back into water or make the frogs disappear, not just multiply more of them. But it's in the third plague, the third wonder, that we read of the first time that the magicians try but fail to replicate the miracle performed by Aaron and Moses. The blood to water, they copied that one. Multiplying frogs, they copied that one. Earlier in another demonstration, when Aaron and Moses' rod had turned into a serpent, they also copied that. But in this third wonder, they try to replicate what Moses and Aaron do, but they fail. And when they fail, they turn to Pharaoh and they make this declaration, this is the finger of God. And it's here that we again hear the divine laughter. What was this third plague that the magicians of Egypt could not replicate? They couldn't duplicate this one. Lice. Oh yes, lice. The laughter is here made all the more evident when we remember that for the Egyptians, the symbols of godlike power were again monumental architecture projects. The pharaohs, a word, by the way, which is derived from a root that means big house, built massive temples and palaces to celebrate their own achievements. Not only that, but they erected these larger-than-life statues and images of themselves to celebrate their own status as God-kings. To put this in perspective, at one of these temple complexes, Ramesses II had four massive statues of himself each one 65 feet high, carved into the rock face of the cliff. 
Now, this is in addition to the pyramids, which again, like Mesopotamia, were built on flat lands surrounding the river and towered over their surroundings. The great pyramid at Giza, built before Abraham was born, was so massive that it was to remain the tallest human-made structure on earth for nearly 4,000 years. It was something like just over 480 feet high and contained in excess of 88 million cubic feet of material. And it was in the midst of all of this massive architecture, these grandiose statues and images depicting the leaders of the most powerful military empire in the world at that time, that God shows His power through one of the tiniest of insects. This is God laughing at the hubris of these so-called God kings. These rulers who were so obsessed with putting their face and their image and their likeness everywhere in this constant declaration that they are responsible for empire, that they were the conquerors of all nations, that they were the leaders who could bend foreign peoples to their will, who could subjugate vast armies. In the midst of all of that, God shows them just how small they really are through an insect that, while painful, is almost invisible to the naked eye. In this circumstance, where the statues of Pharaoh are so big that you cannot miss them, God begins to unravel the power of empire through something so small that you have to strain your eye to even see it. This is the finger of God that signals the looming defeat of the empire. We should also note here that it is no accident that it is the humblest of men, Moses, who is used by God to defeat this powerful empire. God's response to human delusions of grandeur expressed in these larger-than-life tributes to the so-called God-kings is laughter. We hear that laughter in the arrival of tiny insects. So small, you can barely see them. God laughs. Our third instance, Numbers 22. A curious story about a prophet and a talking donkey. Balak, the Moabite king, together with the leaders of the Midianites, sent a delegation to Balaam the seer, asking him, to curse the Israelites. This is what Balak asks. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. In this request by Balak, we see a certain understanding of the holy man, the shaman, the wonder worker, the person with access to supernatural powers. Implicit is this understanding that you can bribe the divine. You can manipulate the supernatural and bend it to your own needs and desires. 
Now, the rest of this narrative is admittedly a bit obscure. God says, don't go. And then Balak sends a second delegation. And God's response to Balaam is now to grant him leave to go. He's just supposed to say what God tells him to say and nothing else. So then Balaam sets out to go. And Scripture says that God's really mad about this. And this is when the talking donkey episode takes place. The donkey sees an angel blocking the path ahead of them. An angel that we know is there to kill Balaam. And so the donkey veers off into a field to avoid the angel. Balaam strikes the donkey, hits the donkey, gets it back up on the pathway. But she still sees the angel, so she veers again, this time into a wall, smashing Balaam's foot. And once again, he hits the donkey, trying to get it back on the pathway to continue the journey. But since she can't get around the angel, the donkey just lays down. She's not going any further. And Balaam is so mad, he takes his staff and begins to beat the donkey, who then begins to speak to him. And when he looks up, Balaam now also sees the angel that had previously been invisible to him. Strange story, right? So let's think about this for a minute. First of all, why did God say, don't go, then go, and then was mad when Balaam did go. That's an odd part that we need to think about. Evidently, God knew Balaam's heart. Balaam, it seems, really wanted to curse the Israelites. And we know this because later we read of him advising the Midianites to use their women to seduce the Israelite men, thus provoking the wrath of God. So even though in this instance he wasn't able to curse the Israelites, it's not for lack of desire on his own part. Here was a man, one who could command both blessing and cursing at will. He is the seer, the one who is supposed to be able to see. And yet we hear the divine laughter in the recognition that the donkey can see what the seer cannot. Again, this idea that you can hire out blessing and cursing essentially presupposes that you think God can be bribed. The scripture, however, makes it clear that it is God who blesses and curses, not human beings. Furthermore, you can't bribe God. Simple animals will see angels that prophets cannot. This is God. Laughing. Oh, how the nations rage and the people's plot. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The psalmist was not unaware of what was transpiring around him. He saw it, but he was perceptive enough to realize the absurdity of it all. That's why he begins his song with a question. Why, he asks, don't they understand? 
What hubris to think that mere humans can bend creation to suit our needs. To think that we can bend other people to suit our desires. Or to think that we can bend God to do our will. From heaven's vantage point, the ultimate absurdity is when humans start thinking of themselves as godlike. When humans start acting like creation belongs to them. When humans start treating their fellow humans as lesser. When humans imagine that God can be bribed or manipulated to serve their own ends. This is absurdity, my friends. So let us return and hear again the closing words of the psalmist. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Be warned, be warned, O rulers of the earth, you who are raging and scheming and plotting. I hear the Ancient of Days laughing. Watch out when you begin to think that you can ascend to the heavens and bend creation to your will. Watch out when you begin to think of yourself as a God King who can bend other people to your will. Watch out when you begin to see yourself as some holy man, some wonder worker who can bless and curse as you please, bending God Himself to your will. You think you're some kind of spiritual powerhouse. Master of all the spiritual gifts. And God says, I'm about to show your dog something you can't see. In the face of such hubris, he who sits in the heavens will laugh. And his laughing will be your undoing. Today I want to challenge us to step back from the raging. To step back from the scheming and plotting. And to remember, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. See, my question to all of us today is this. In what have we taken refuge? In things that provoke divine laughter? Or in the body of the One who Himself bore our iniquities? Let me set the record straight today. We have not gathered here in this place to play some narcissistic game, trying to bend creation or other people or even God to our own ends. We are here because we take refuge, not in our own prowess, not in our own abilities, not in our own strength, but in the Lord our God. We are here because we recognize blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here in just a moment, we're going to be taking communion which is a beautiful celebration of what it means to take refuge in Him. It is an antidote to our delusions of grandeur. It reminds us that we take refuge not in our buildings, not in our empires, not in our abilities to control God. The simple elements today, grape juice and crackers, Remind us that our confidence and hope is in the suffering servant of Isaiah. Listen to the words of the prophet. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The ruling powers may indeed think us foolish to take refuge in this one. But let me assure you, God is not laughing at this humble gathering. It is here, in the midst of that which seems so insignificant to the grandiose delusions of our world, where the undoing of empire begins. Our participation in this meal is our embrace of an upside-down kingdom where love and service reign. It signals our willingness to step away from the tower-building projects, to stop making statues of ourselves, to quit playing God. It is a kingdom of service, of sacrifice, of self-giving love. God is at work, my friends. God is on the move. But the Apostle Paul said it is through the weak and the insignificant things that God brings about His kingdom. Not in the grandiose and the monumental. This simple meal is an act of remembrance. And today we are not here to remember the monumental structures of Mesopotamia. We are not here to remember the God kings of Egypt. And we are not here to remember the wonder workers who bless and curse. But this is a meal of remembrance, calling to mind the suffering servant who gave himself for us. I'm not here looking to build a tower so that I might ascend into heaven. I'm not here today to find a new strategy to bend people to do my bidding. And I am surely not here to bribe God. I'm here to rest in the work of the risen Christ. I'm here to rest in his mercy and his goodness and his love. Let's pray as we take this communion. Lord Jesus, remind us today that you alone are sovereign. You alone sit in the heavens. So help us to walk humbly before you. You resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.